The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Your metastatus back to normal will try to figure out or at least exclude these other conditions that may mimic syncope. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to this episode of Annals on Call. Today we're going to discuss an article, Identifying High-Risk Patients with Syncope, What Hospitals Need to Know, from the February 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining us is the first author, Venkatesh Thiragana Sambana Demurthy, who's an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa, a scientist in the Clinical Epidemiology Program, and the leader of a group that has a vision of improving care of patients with cardiovascular emergencies, specifically syncope, presyncope, and chest pain by reducing morbidity and mortality using robust risk stratification. We hope you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion of syncope and the syncope score that they developed that helps stratify patients into higher and lower risk of mortality from syncope. Ben, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. Any of us who do a lot of hospital work have to deal with patients admitted for syncope. And what really fascinated me about the article that you wrote is you gave me some parameters for deciding how extensive a workup I have to do and, and when I don't need to do as extensive a workup. But why don't we start out by having you define syncope and tell me when someone's admitted to the hospital and they're, they're labeled as syncope, what do we need to do? That's a great way to start. Syncope is defined as sudden transient loss of consciousness followed by spontaneous complete recovery. We will break that a little bit more as we go through the process. Before that, what I suggest that people do and I teach my residents and fellow physicians exactly the same way. A clear history of what happened is very important. Bottom line is that I try to reconstruct visually what had happened. By the time I take the history, this is the way that it will sound like, like, you know, I will just go through each bits and pieces of information very slowly. They'll just say, I was sitting down and then I got up and then I had a loss of consciousness. Or like, you know, uh, they'll just say like, you know, I was sitting down, I got up and then something happened. So I'll just say like, okay, let's go slowly. You were sitting down. How long were you sitting down? I was sitting down for two hours watching television. Okay. Everything was fine then? Yes. You got up. Okay. And then were you feeling okay at that time when you got up? They'll say yes. And then... What happened next? I was going to the bathroom. Okay. You took a few steps, correct? 
Okay. What was the very first symptom that you got? Uh, I was feeling a little lightheaded. Okay. Then what happened? I held the wall. So I go through each bits and pieces of it very slowly and then reconstruct the whole thing that what had happened. Finally, to look like you're sitting down for two hours, got up, you're okay. You took a few steps. You felt lightheaded. There was a few seconds to a few minutes of this lightheadedness. You feel like you are going to pass out or it was vision was getting blurry. You held the wall. You laid yourself all by yourself without hitting anything, uh, without hitting your head. And when you're on the ground, you don't know what happened. The next thing you, what happened is that, that you wake up and you saw that your dog was licking on your face. So you just need to reconstruct. Once you reconstruct, then you will know what had happened to your patient. So the essential components, when I talked about the definition of syncope, if you just look at it, there are three main components. The mental status should be back to baseline when you're talking to the patient. One, there must have been a loss of consciousness. And this loss of consciousness must have been sudden. And it must have been transient, lasting for, like, usually they say it lasts for about 20 seconds. Generally, people overestimate the time. I will say, like, you know, they will say, like, one, two minutes, three minutes. Then they become back to being normal over the next few minutes. And generally, they will just say, within less than five minutes, they're back to normal. In a true sense, it happens that they have lost their consciousness for about, like, 10 to 15 seconds. It takes one or two minutes for them to become normal. Let's once again break down into pieces because that's where your information is there. If the mental status is not back to baseline, you may be talking about the patient having some sort of a delirium or the patient has had some sort of an intracranial event or a pathology such as bleeding, spontaneous bleeding, or a, a stroke of some sort those patients will not be back to mental status being normal. Like you know, they may not be able to talk, they might have some weakness, those type of things. Or they can be having some metabolic abnormalities such as like hypoglycemia where they will not spontaneously return back to normal or they may be intoxicated. Your mental status back to normal will try to figure out or at least exclude these other conditions that may mimic syncope. One important condition that I want to talk to you about is um, seizures, syncope, and the postictal phase. For patients who had seizures and in during their postictal phase, they will not be back to normal. It takes like more than five minutes for them to be back to normal. They are drowsy, they are sleepy, they will not respond to any questions. The GCS is less than normal. During seizures, like your movements are tonic, clonic, but whereas in syncope, there is this, what we call it as anoxic seizures. There is a slight amplitude movements of the hands and the legs before they lose their consciousness and or they are, as they're losing their consciousness. That becomes an important point because patients, mostly family members, will confuse it as seizures. Patients and their family members will confuse these anoxic uh, seizures or anoxic movements, small amplitude movements as seizures and you have to be really careful and ask them whether they had like tonic, chronic, big amplitude movements or not. And the postictal phase will also help you to differentiate between seizures and syncope. A few other things that will help you to differentiate is like tongue biting, incontinence, 
those are other features that will help you to differentiate from uh, seizures. There's one thing that I have said, and I want to make sure that I'm saying it right. I might not be, but when someone comes in and, and obviously fell down hard and there's an injury, then I'm much more concerned that this was a major sinkable event uh, than if someone comes in and they say they sort of slumped down in the chair or something like that. Am I overstressing this falling down and hurting yourself? Both of your patients that you talked about might have a syncope because I have seen many of the patients syncopalize, but gradually, particularly those who have had previous history of syncope, know it's coming, so they will just hold on to something and go down. So I don't use that to very much differentiate between syncope and seizures, but if they fell down hard and they had no clue, no prodrome, that may be a sign of cardiac syncope because it happened like so quickly that they had even no time to just like realize what is happening. And then they hit themselves hard on their head when they go down. I'm a little worried about an older patient who suddenly, without any kind of predisposing factors, dropping down yeah. and having a hard hit on the head. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I get patients admitted to me who've had to have stitches in the emergency department or have bruises all over their face. Couple of more things. If the patient did not have a loss of consciousness, then you might be dealing with something else. For example, pre-syncope or like near syncope. The history to ask for in that case is, by the way, you started having lightheadedness, you started having all the symptoms in the form of blurriness, you are almost going to lose your consciousness, but you came back becoming normal. That's pre-syncope or near-syncope. Both of these conditions of syncope and pre-syncope are pretty much the same. That's what the literature says. Then if you don't have a loss of consciousness, you may be dealing with falls. You may be dealing with a carotid TIA if there were associated neurological symptoms because carotid TIA generally does not lead to a loss of consciousness because Technically, for loss of consciousness, you need to have a transient global hypoperfusion. A carotid TIA has a regional hypoperfusion for the brain and does not lead to loss of consciousness. And the last one is a psychogenic pseudosyncope. There is not a true loss of consciousness. They faint as if they have lost their consciousness. And then they will move their face away as you're trying to wake them up, like even with a sternal rub. And like, you know, if you just have their hand up and then like try to get them on their face, like, and it just goes down yeah. like this. There is only one thing that is very, very similar to syncope, but easy to differentiate is a vertebral vessel or TIA. Because it's uh, circulation of the ascending reticular activating system, transient blood flow loss to the ascending reticular activating system leads to loss of consciousness. But these patients always tend to have some kind of dysarthria, coordination problems, and is not as transient as syncope tends to have uh, like a TIA, it's just like longer, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. So this is how you differentiate syncope from non-syncope conditions. Good. When I have patients admitted to my service with syncope, I sort of go over why we need to worry about syncope. Because there's, as we're going to get to with the uh, wonderful risk score that uh, you've developed, there are syncopes that don't recur and don't portend bad things happening, and there's syncopes that are very, very anxiety-provoking for the physician and dangerous for the patient. So I always start out with the heart, and I start out with fast rhythms, slow rhythms, coronary artery events, and valvular disease. 
Is that a reasonable way to start the, of the things that we worry about in the heart? Yes, that kind of concludes pretty much like, you know, all cardiac. A couple of things that I may add is like, you know, sometimes like there are a few other bizarre things that can happen. For example, if you have a large pericardial effusion, like, you know, with exertion, you're not putting out enough, that can also cause it. That's one of the structural causes that can happen. An extension of the heart is the cardiopulmonary, which is a large P that tends to cause syncope at times. So uh, your approach in the form of like the most important cardiac syncope, these are the cardiac causes, fast rhythm, slow rhythm, coronary artery disease, which is a larger MI and valvular, uh, important valvular problems. Yes, that covers most of the cardiac ones. In looking for those, does the history or the physical exam or the ECG, are they all important in different ways? And yes. when do you consider that you might need to do echocardiography, for example? Unfortunately, there is not good literature evidence in order to figure out who needs echocardiography, but we can use some clinical sense, I believe. So somebody who has got some kind of predisposition that is basal, they see blood, they see a friend who's just like, you know, suddenly out of the blue has arrived, standing prolonged in a hot place. There is some pain. If you hit your shin against a sharp uh, edge of a corner of a table, pain, all of this will predispose you to vasovagal syncope. So that is predisposition to vasovagal syncope. And then you tend to have a prodrome and then you lose your consciousness. You come back to being normal. Whereas the other patient on the other side will be, if I exert myself, you end up having palpitations and have a sudden syncope, end up hitting your head and with no prodrome or then you don't expect the syncope to happen, such as like, you know, you are sitting down and usually vasovagal syncope, they say like, you know, it happens when you are just walking, but you're sitting down, not doing anything or syncope when you're lying down supine. Those are things that are worrisome. You have palpitations beforehand at time, you have a cardiac history and you have an underlying cardiac pathology. Those are worrisome things. That's in the history. When you examine the patient, they were not expected to have a loud systolic murmur of an aortic stenosis or a muffled heart sounds, then you're worried that this may be a valvular or something is happening in the pericardium. If they have chest pain with exertion, the, of all the things like you know, the coronary artery disease is probably the least structural thing because it has got more clues in the history. I have chest pain and then I have massive chest pain and then I do the syncope, then you would Generally, using ECG and troponin, you should be able to roll out a large MI because unstable angina should not cause syncope. You already discussed vertebral basilar artery as a very unusual cause. Uh, you mentioned pulmonary embolism, and pulmonary embolism, at least in the U.S. and Canada, seems to be a very unusual cause also. I assume there are usually other clues to go looking down that road. Exactly. There are several collaborators in the U.S. who have done syncope studies on older patients, uh, 60 or older. And then we did a large cohort study of all patients presenting with syncope. We combined both of the data, about 9,000 patients. And overall, 0.6% is the prevalence of PE among patients. All commerce will come to emerge. Out of that, 0.5% will be identified by the emergency physician. And among those who are admitted to the hospital, 
among all comers I'm talking about is 0.1%. But if we take the subgroup where we have some type of suspicion, whether they have immobilization, they have shortness of breath, they have a pleuritic chest pain, or they have legs that are one of your, their legs that are swollen, which, is, which leads to a suspicion of DVD. If you take that subgroup, which is about 5% of patients in the large subgroup of 9,000, 10,000 patients, 500 patients were investigated either with a D-dimer or with some kind of imaging such as CTPE or VQ scan. Among those subgroup of patients where there is a suspicion, about 10% of patients will end up having a PE. So for all comers, I don't think that we need to just indiscriminately do PE workup. But if you have a suspicion, then yes, go ahead and do it. You can just restratify them whether they need D-dimer or like SCT or VQ. And then among those patients, about 10% of them will have probably an underlying PE. The last thing that uh, I always ask the uh, house staff is about orthostasis. Is this something we should be doing in all of these patients or do you pick by the story? The answer is going to be a little nuanced. I will, I will give the arguments for both sides of the story. Uh, there are pros and cons to doing to each side. The guideline, the European guideline says, do it on all patients. The American guideline says, do a history and physical examination. Under the physical examination, they say, you can consider orthostatic vital signs. Okay, so the guidelines kind of say, yes. The other side of the story is, there are good evidence, epidemiological evidence, that somewhere about 20 to uh, 20%, that is one in five patients who are age 65 or more, if you did orthostatic vitals, they will fulfill criteria for 20 millimeters of mercury drop in systolic and 10 millimeter or 10 millimeter systolic, sorry, diastolic blood pressure drop. So the prevalence of asymptomatic hypotension, orthostatic hypotension is about 18% because only 2% of those people will be symptomatic. Okay? So my approach is when you take the history, you don't think it is orthostatic because you think it's vasovagal that is predisposition, then just don't do it. No need to do it. But if you don't know the cause, you're thinking between like, you know, is it orthostatic? Is it an older patient? They are on beta blockers. They are on calcium channel blockers and vasodilators. Do orthostatic hypertension. If they are profoundly symptomatic, yes. Like, you know, then you have an orthostatic problem. Try to give them fluids, maintain their fluid status and make sure that they are no longer symptomatic or they no longer have a drop. That helps you in the form of, if they resolve the symptoms that may prevent recurrences of syncope for these patients. And then, at the same time, you have to make sure that the cardiac problem does not exist. So for patients for whom you are debating that it is not a low-risk syncope, do it and treat it. If they are not getting adequate treatment by uh, resuming the blood pressures drop, you have corrected the blood pressure drop, but they still have ongoing symptoms or like you know, they still syncopalize, then you are missing something. Just to add on that, I think that's the value of the physician doing it him or herself rather than, uh, I, I see too often that uh, the house staff will order orthostatic blood pressure. And it's part of the physical examining because you want to see, did the patient actually get near syncope or even start to syncopize when you stand them up? 
And one another important thing with that is, you know, I always find the uh, nursing staff, either they do it within like 30 seconds and then like, you know, just get the patient down or uh, the patient is already walking and they have normalized and then they just go and do the blood pressure. Like, you know, after a long time where the value of it is not there. Okay, let's, let's go to the score because I think that's the big message of this is that when a patient is admitted to my service, when I go back on service in three days and they come out of the emergency department with a diagnosis of syncope and I convince myself after the history that they do have syncope, I love this score because it, it tells me who's really at risk and obviously the people at risk, I'm going to do a very aggressive, extensive workup. Uh, as opposed to people who are not at risk. So tell us the story of creating this score and the things that are part of it and how it's used. You want the story of creating this <laughs> score? <laughs> well, I was actually working in a small community emergency department and uh, I was single at that time. I used to work like every weekend. Every Sunday, I used to work. And um, it was a little town that was quite religious and um, needed a lot of seniors. So a lot of patients in in there in the church. Mm-hmm. And I used to see all of those patients coming to the emergency department. I really struggled with it as to how I can uh, solve it. And I just started like only with a small thing. My objective was to do a literature review and come up with a small plan as to how to tackle these patients. I was in a community, I was not in an academic center. I was not doing any research at that time. And then I could not do it well. So I just joined a small research course to do this literature search and then come up with like one piece of paper so that I can just take care of these patients. And I realized that things did not exist. And then it evolved into a research program for the past 10, 12 years and ended up with the scoring system and validation of the scoring system. So that's the story about the scoring system. And the, the factors, and, and I really urge everybody to get this article, have this table, the table two and table three in the article are just gold uh, because it, it tells you what the risks are and then it tells you what the uh, probabilities of serious outcomes, which can really change how how long you keep the patient in the hospital and whether you need to get cardiology involved, et cetera. Exactly. Now what we did was that like, you know, during the first derivation phase, like, you know, we collected a large number of variables on patients and we collected their outcomes. We looked at going back as a physician, when you approach a patient with syncope, I usually teach this. What you're trying to look for is, was there any serious condition that caused the syncope that is in front of the for the, in the patient in front of you. I approach it by two ways. I need to detect if there is something that's already going on in the patient. I go through head to toe. Is there something intracranially that might have caused it? Like, you know, such as a bleeding or a tumor sometimes gives some kind of a vagal response in the chest, PE, MI, and all the cardiac things that we talked about. And in the belly, an occult hemorrhage, ectopic pregnancy. So these are the serious conditions that you as a physician, when you're approaching the patient, you're looking at, I want to detect these serious conditions. Once the serious conditions, you just, after your evaluation you and the history and the physical exam, you don't think that these things are going on. The next thing that you should probably do is you should just say, is there something transient there, arrhythmia, that was there 
that could have happened. That's why the patient fainted. So you have to evaluate what the risk of arrhythmia is. Indirectly, these serious conditions lead on to death, and thereby you are assessing what's the chance of death. So we evaluated all the variables, and we came up with these list of variables. If you have major vagal predisposition, and if you have heart disease. So during the clinical evaluation, you're looking for vasovagal predisposition, heart disease, and during the emergency department stay or during the entire course, was there too high of a blood pressure or too low of a blood pressure? The high blood pressure may signify underlying uh, uncontrolled hypertension and effects of uh, uncontrolled hypertension and the low blood pressure may signify an occult bleeding in a patient or sepsis or general condition. If, if they have congestive heart failure and low blood pressure, it may signify that. Elevated troponin, and not necessarily that it is going to diagnose MI. So we found troponin as a predictor of bad outcomes that are uh, in a patient and as well as a predictor of the severity of heart disease in the patient. And the abnormal ECG variables that we talked about, like, you know, there is that in the score, which is abnormal QRS axis, QRS duration that is broad, and corrected QT interval. And the final thing that the tool talks about is, what is your gut feeling? Is it vasovagal syncope or is it cardiac syncope? We talked about how by history you can differentiate the two. Sometimes you will not know. For that, you will just use a score of like zero, which is like, you know, you don't select either of them. Then you add it up. When you add up, you have the total score. Based upon the total score, you can just stratify the patients into five categories, very low, low, medium, high, and very high. Or I just simply use like low because I combine both the very low and low together. If you classify the patient as low or very low, the chance of having unexpected death or a ventricular arrhythmia in this patient is zero. And overall risk of serious, any serious outcome is like about 1-2%. There are some supraventricular arrhythmias that will happen. There will be one or two, like one of the serious underlying conditions that I talked about in the form of like uh, maybe a small PE or like some bleeding that may happen, but it is rare. These patients can be discharged home. And like, you know, we have done surveys of cardiologists, internists. We have done qualitative interviews of, physici of physicians and patients. All of them agree that these patients can be discharged home with clear instructions to follow. If you look at the medium risk, it is about 18% of patients fall into this category of medium risk, one in six patients, of whom about 8% of them will have some kind of serious underlying condition. A good 5% of it is an arrhythmia, which is a supraventricular arrhythmia again. The chance of death or ventricular arrhythmia is about 1% of these patients. So it depends upon the risk level. In Canada, we are going to discharge these patients home. 1% chance of 0.9% chance of ventricular arrhythmia, 0.1% chance of death, that's safe to send home. But we are dealing with 5% chance of a supraventricular arrhythmia. We are going to put a prolonged monitoring on these patients, outpatient monitoring. And we are going to take care of detecting those, give them clear instructions for any of the serious conditions and ask them to come back to the emergency department or see their doctor if any of the symptoms is evolved. That leaves us with the about 7% of high-risk patients who will probably benefit from a short course of hospitalization. We looked at when do these arrhythmias and these non-arrhythmic conditions happen. It happens in two or three days. 
So you could just have a short course of admission for two or three days and then discharge them home with an outpatient monitor to detect any added needs. And I hope this makes sense. Yeah, and so I assume you might, you might get an echocardiogram in the high-risk people. You would, probably wouldn't, wouldn't do that. You definitely wouldn't do that in the low-risk people. Probably wouldn't do it in the medium-risk people because it's more arrhythmias that you're trying to pick up and usually the superventricular type arrhythmias. Yeah, um, exactly. That doesn't include like, I guess most of the heart block. Some people do sometimes have intermittent heart block. And when do we think about that? You pick that up with, with monitoring most of the time. For the low risk and the medium risk, for example, if they are low, but you feel that you're hearing a murmur and you want an evaluation, you can do an outpatient. Yeah. That is like reasonable, clinically uh, reasonable. And for high-risk patients, like, you know, if they have cardiac disease, yes, for sure, have a monitor. Still, we are going to be doing echo only on 7% of patients, which is fairly reasonable for health for care resource utilization. Um, now, the intermittent blocks with our scoring system, you should be able to pick up because they will have some kind of heart disease. They will have a wire and QRS because of their blocks, and they may have corrected QT interval, uh, and the QRS axis will be abnormal. Let's say if they don't pick up and if you're still suspicious, usually what I say to my uh, residents and students and as well as colleagues who approach me is that, that let's look at it. So there are probably three physicals, like, you know, there is the right bundle, there is a left anterior and posterior physical groups. And if you have two, and along with that, if you also have a first degree heart block, and then if you find that the story suggests you of a sudden syncope that happens like, you know, just suddenly without much of a prodrome, and now you're suspicious, then these patients might have an intermittent third degree heart block. And when we mapped out when are these like arrhythmias are happening, when we found out these patients will benefit from a prolonged outpatient monitoring. So 15 days, you can put a 15 day monitor on them, or you can also send to electrophysiology as an outpatient and then they, they would do provocative testing to see if the block happens and they can decide based on that. One thing is that, that like, you know, uh, I have very good cardiology colleagues that I talk to them. And as eMERGE physicians, we are always scared about this third degree heart block. And then they say, well, when there are some rare patients without any of these evidence that, that two fascicles, three fascicles are blocked, you don't have a good history. Can somebody have an occasional transient heart third degree heart block, yes, one of, one of these patients you're going to see. But the good thing is, these patients don't drop dead. They will end up having feeling unwell, they're having nausea, they feel like totally unwell, but they will survive. When they feel unwell, they call an ambulance, they come back, then you detect third degree heart block. But that chance is really, really low, still exists, but you don't have to get worried about an unexpected death in these patients because your ventricular escape rhythm usually protects you. That's great. This has been wonderful. Really appreciate uh, you clarifying all this. One of the things that I try to teach the most and I'm most obsessed with is diagnostic reasoning. And you've provided a great example uh, and great stories about how to do diagnostic reasoning in patients who have syncope uh, and I'm sure that uh, all the listeners will really appreciate both the scores 
and your approach to the patient. And I loved at the very beginning when you were talking about the history. So thank you so much, Venka. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wide-ranging discussion of syncope really focused first on taking a very careful history to be sure that we're dealing with syncope, then being able to distinguish syncope from other causes of loss of consciousness, and finally, in stratifying patients for the risk of more serious syncope, uh, which translates to the risk of mortality. The Canadian syncope score is a very useful tool for helping us decide whether we need to do an extensive workup in the hospital and after discharge, as opposed to a much less extensive workup. I believe that this will help me in my own work as an academic hospitalist, and we hope it'll help you whether you do hospital work or uh, do primarily outpatient work. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.